Turo is the world's largest car-sharing marketplace. With Turo, you can book any car you want, wherever you want it, from a community of local hosts. Browse a huge selection of vehicles for just about any occasion or budget. Book an SUV or minivan for a family road trip, a pickup truck for some errands, or even test drive an EV. Every trip is backed by liability insurance. Terms, conditions, and exclusions apply. Find your drive. Forget boring rental cars at Turo.com. Welcome back to Humans of Purpose. I'm your host, Mike Davis, and each week I bring you conversations with local purpose-driven leaders. Leaders creating social impact through their work and inspiring positive social change across a wide variety of sectors. Sit back, tune in, and enjoy the next 40 minutes guaranteed to inspire you with our signature blend of wisdom, experience, and banter. Learn more at humansofpurpose.com. You know, historically, we focused on poverty alleviation, um, and we've we've shifted now to focus more on um, sort of equity and sustainability. So, you know, and that was really driven by thinking about like, well, what is a priority today, um, and also what's within our control to shift. Um, what are we best placed to have an impact on? And we've, you know, we've started to develop some exciting new expertise um, around gender. Um, and starting to move into the sustainability space. Great to be back with you here, as always. Following on from our fresh podcast rebrand, we've updated our promotional package PDF, which you'll find in our show notes and via our website at humansofpurpose.com. Our promotional packages enable values-aligned people and their organizations to reach our growing global audience, translating to over 10,000 episode listeners per month in Australia and globally, as well as our growing social media community. Our demographic is primarily 25 to 44-year-olds who are senior leaders in their organisation and more or less based in urban centres across Australia. As part of our social enterprise model, we limit these promotional spots to 10 out of 50 episodes each year to fund the podcast and have just a few spots remaining for the year. You can learn more about this limited opportunity and get in touch via our show notes. As a keen listener, if you want a bit more Humans of Purpose each and every week, now is a great time to become a member with 30% off monthly and annual Humans of Purpose memberships until the end of August. With membership, you'll get every episode ad-free, a bonus audio note on each guest, a full transcript of each episode, as well as my top five insights from every episode and more. Check out the link in our show notes to learn more. We're proud, of course, to be sponsored by the great folk at Neon Treehouse, who are still the best digital agency on the planet Earth. They're doing a fantastic job with online marketing and socials for a great cause. This week, I'm thrilled to welcome Caitlin Tate to the podcast. Caitlin is the co-founder and head of learning at YGAP. YGAP is an international organization that creates positive change by making entrepreneurship more inclusive. Caitlin has had an incredible life and career journey to date and her impact and within and beyond YGAP is nothing short of extraordinary. Caitlin uh, treads a well-worn path with uh, former guests including former CEO Manita Ray and Elliot Costello. Hope you enjoyed my conversation with Caitlin as much as I did. So what a thrill to be joined by Caitlin Tate, who is all the way in sunny Byron. Well, I think it might be sunny. How are you going this morning? It is sunny. I'm good. Thanks, Mike. Happy to be here. So I I think I can see a bit of sun filtering through your window, and that makes me excited because I'm heading up the coast next week. Is it? How's it been up there? It's, um, I mean, this year has been exceptionally rainy, uh, but the last few days we've had some good sunshine 
Um, and I think we're on the up, you know, it's getting getting nicer as we move out of winter. Yeah, lucky, lucky. And so you moved up to Byron five years ago, you were saying? That's right, yeah. Just and just the general desire for a change, different community? Yeah, I mean, we had our son, our first son um, in 2017 and sort of that was kind of an impetus to say, okay, you know, we need more space. Where do we want to go? Um, and yeah, we, we because of our work was flexible and we could we were working remotely anyway. Um, we we just thought, why not? Uh, and we had been coming up to Byron quite a bit for holidays and things. So um, yeah, made. Did you move. consider um, any other destinations, or did you fall in love with Byron pretty immediately? <laughs> well, we were um, we were in Sydney at the time and um, kind of traveling back and forth between Sydney and Melbourne, where YGAP is based, and um, we considered just going further north like northern suburbs of Sydney um but yeah when we looked at the fact that you know we didn't need to be close to the city um and we just we actually moved at a really good time before kind of Byron price like the house market kicked off too much so we got a good deal (laughs) and did you beat the influx of influencers to Byron because I know about Byron Bay and a whole bunch of these other shows are they still around Oh, you know, I don't run into those people, (laughs) but I'm sure they are still around. You know, I feel like there's two different, you know, as living as a young family in Byron, I feel like there's two different lives. You've got like the young people that influences what I don't even know what that world looks like. (laughs) I saw it on Byron Bay's for about 10 minutes before I turned it off. Um, Yeah, I think that's the average time that most people last watching that show. Exactly. Yeah. Um, But yeah, it's a very different kind of. I guess, crew that we engage with up here. Um, so let's get into it. I mean, I'd love to hear a little bit about your your story and how you um, came to be involved with Spark International and YGAP. Um, take us back, you know, maybe even to the sort of um, your early days um, growing up and what you were thinking about doing and how you sort of came to find yourself in this space uh, that really revolves around building that um, entrepreneurial ecosystem and um, helping entrepreneurs to thrive in disadvantaged regions. Yeah, awesome. Um, So I grew up in California um, and, you know, was, I moved around a lot as a kid um, and then ended up back in California for uni. Um, And I studied uh, psychology uh, and was really interested though in um, like the, the uni that I went to did a lot of um, it was a Jesuit university. So they did a lot of work um, like immersion experiences. So I went and built houses in Mexico. I went and worked in a native American community um, sort of at a school. And it was kind of some of those experiences and some courses I took on development um, that I was really interested in, uh, I I became really interested in actually education um, and then in the developing world and, and, you know, what the intersection of that looks like and um, how I could play a role. At the time, I think I was kind of, um, you know, uh, interested in potentially working for the UN one day or, you know, had those kind of big ideas, um, but didn't really know, yeah, what the path was going to look like. Um, I actually met my husband, Aaron, um, in my third year of uni. I was over in Spain doing a semester of my undergrad degree, and we met and sort of bonded over this sort of idealistic, you know, desire to do something different with our lives and make an impact 
still didn't know what that was going to look like. I moved back to California, finished uni, and then I actually moved to Sydney and did a master's of international education. Um, and, and after that, Aaron and I actually decided to kind of book a one-way flight to Kenya and see, because we knew if we wanted to work in that world, um, we needed that on the ground experience. And so um, we just thought, let's, let's get it. <laughs> um, and we, we found a place um, to, to start. Uh, and after a few months there, we just kind of sent out CVs to as many <laughs> different organizations on the continent that might think about, you know, giving us an internship or letting us volunteer. You know, it's quite hard to find volunteer experiences that you didn't have to pay thousands of dollars for. Mm. Um, but we ended up finding an experience in Tanzania. Um, they just sort of were happy to fly us there and pay us a stipend to work at this secondary school for um, street kids, basically. They were, um, yeah, orphaned and um, they ran an HIV program. And uh, there was a few different kind of things that they were trying to do with this marquee program it was based out of, the organization was based out of the u.s um washington dc anyway that was sort of our our training i guess in um in the kind of work that we we thought we wanted to be doing but it was a really really eye-opening experience and as much as we had studied because aaron studied international development um my international education course the parts that i was really passionate about were looking at social policy poverty education you know and and that was kind of what the direction i was hoping to go in and so we were writing papers about participatory development and you know what that looked like and how to do that but then you know when you're thrown in the deep end um you know our our culture and our instincts to just want to jump in and solve problems um were, were really hard to overcome. And so we learned a lot, like we learned the hard way, um, what not to do. Uh, and, you know, that was kind of what inspired the origin of Spark International was, um, you know, we, we realized we made a lot of mistakes by not sort of, we wanted to step back and listen and be participatory, but there were just so many um, challenges thrown at us that like, you know, we arrived the first day and and then the computers were stolen and then there was no food. And then, you know, and so it was like, okay, let's just problem solve. Um, And, and we, we didn't really get the chance to sit down and go, well, what do you want? And, and what, you know, um, and, and that's what we should have done, but it was, it kind of felt like crisis mode. And, um, and anyway, so that was a, a really good learning experience. And, and through our year, like almost two years in East Africa, we um, we worked in a you know in a few different projects. And um, through those experiences, we after after the first year of making some mistakes in Tanzania, we went back to Kenya um, and did it very differently and um, worked very much with the community, leading everything that we were doing and saw the power in that and saw um, some really amazing local leaders who were stepping up with these great ideas for what needed to change in their communities. And we realized that we could never, you know, create the sustainable change that these communities needed as outsiders. Um, But we still saw a lot of organizations trying to do that. And so we really felt that there was a need for, uh, you know, an organization that found these local um, leaders at the time we were calling them local leaders um, who had these great ideas for their community and could could change um, you know could lead change um, and so that was what you know we started out we, we moved back we did a year in, in the UK and then we moved back to Sydney and launched Spark um, and at the time we didn't we weren't, we weren't calling it an accelerator 
because, you know, and social enterprise was still in the very early days of um, as a concept. And so we didn't know that that's what we were doing. And it was only a couple of years in after piloting in Papua New Guinea um, with a, a small group of um, local leaders and, and making lots of changes in the cu- first couple of years that we realized actually what we're doing is, <laughs> you know, looking, we're, we're sort of teaching entrepreneurship um, and, and social entrepreneurship and and then this whole ecosystem started to arise around accelerators and incubators. And um, so over time, uh, we realized that's sort of what we were doing. And then it's so well summed up. And I might just pause you there because I know there's more to say, but there's just too many questions bubbling over in my mind. So the first one might be, you know, I would imagine it'd be quite hard to go over as to Western educated uh, white people to, you know, predominantly black communities and to sort of, be accepted and to be brought in and did you feel much like um a bit of like um anxiety around not feeling as though you were just your standard white traveler tourists coming in and observing but not really making a difference on the ground was that something that sort of weighed on your mind yes definitely I mean I think we we knew and I, I think we tried to go in um you know conscious of not not knowing that we were probably going to learn more than we gave, you know? Um, And so we were aware of that, but it's still, yeah, I think we were constantly thinking about like, how do we be really sensitive to not stepping on toes and not kind of coming in. And, um, but I think the tricky thing was that um, unfortunately, a lot of these communities do see at the time, at least, I hope it's changed. Um, or is still changing, but um, a lot of these communities would look to foreigners, outsiders, Mzungu in, in these communities, white people coming in, and they saw them as having the answers or having the money and being able to solve the problems. So as much as you didn't want to play that role, we also felt that they were looking to us to play that role and, and were sort of coming to us, expecting us to play that role. And so it was hard to sort of break that. Um, and it took, you know, we had to, we realized by the time, by the time we left um, that it, it does take a lot more effort to actually, because we would sit, once we learned, once we realized we needed to step back and sort of let the, the community and the school and the teachers decide the direction, um, we would have meetings and, and what do you, you know, say, what do you think, what, what should be the, and there would be no responses and it would be looking to us for those answers. And so we really had to sort of create a space and facilitate, um, you know, that confidence to even think that they had the answers. Um, and so that was an interesting learning. And um, and how did you go about um, sort of building trust? Did you have any techniques that you employed or things that you reflect on now that were key in building trust in those communities? Um, I think, you know, the fact that we were there for quite a, uh, we, we didn't sort of, I think they saw a lot of people come in and leave um, in both places that we were, uh, you know, the first time we went to Kenya, we were only there for a few months um, and we left, but uh, we were in Tanzania for uh, a year. And I think you know, after a little while, they start to realize you're not going. And, um, and I think that in itself built, built trust. Um, I think, you know, we also were just really honest um, when we made mistakes and we, when we realized we weren't really going about it in, in the way that we wanted to be in terms of um, letting them lead and decide the direction of the school and things like this, uh, we apologized and said, you know, we're really sorry, like this is, 
not what we, you know, this is your school and your direction and we want you to lead it. And I think just having that, uh, being able to, to be honest with them about that potentially helped. I don't know if we did anything else deliberately to build that trust um, or if we did, it's probably. Yeah, I think, um, you know, it sounds like you were very willing to adopt the startup mantra of fail fast, fail early mm-hmm. and sort of also build upon that that sort of important um, piece around um, being okay with saying I don't have all the answers uh, mm-hmm. and I'm sorry if I've made a mistake, I'm going to um, do things differently, which can be quite difficult for a lot of people, I think, in uh, in that entrepreneurship space to, to be that level of humility. Mm. Yeah, we were young, um, so I think we, I think we were, you know, 20, 22, 23 or something. Um, Super young, yeah. Yeah, so it was, it was an interesting time to be there. But I think we also were um, really kind of headstrong in, um, in wanting to get the experience, you know. So we were, we kind of put up with a lot um, more than maybe I would now, <laughs> um, knowing that, you know, this is, we wanted to learn um, and that's what we were there to do. Well, that's the way to do it. Do your intrepid hard days early and then be able to come back and build those learnings into something. And it sounds like that's quite what you did. You know, you had your time over there. And so what does it look like um, post-Africa and then the UK and then back home? How do you go from those experiences to, to building what you've done with YGAP and Spark International? Turo is the world's largest car sharing marketplace. With Turo, you can book any car you want, wherever you want it, from a community of local hosts. Browse a huge selection of vehicles for just about any occasion or budget. Book an SUV or minivan for a family road trip, a pickup truck for some errands, or even test drive an EV. Every trip is backed by liability insurance. Terms, conditions, and exclusions apply. Find your drive. Forget boring rental cars at Turo.com. Yeah, so, I mean, we we moved back to Sydney, built the organization, um, and in those early days, there was so much, so many changes um, and tweaking, as I said, um, figuring out exactly what we were doing and what was going to have the biggest impact. Um, and, you know, to, to kind of fast forward to where I think most people will probably um, be familiar with YGAP, um, we... We merged with YGAP, um, which was another uh, organization based in Melbourne, roughly the same size as we were at the time, although they had a a big um, volunteer base and were running lots of successful events and fundraising campaigns. And we um, knew Elliot Costello and had met him a couple of times. And um, they had, I think, got Aaron to come, my husband Aaron, to come and speak to um, their team about some of the work we were doing around social enterprise because they were starting to move into that space and were really keen to, to work more in that. And so we started talking about what a, a collaboration could look like. Um, and yeah, it was a, definitely a, a long journey in terms of from that, that first exploration of a partnership to kind of fully merging but we um yeah it was we thought as two young sort of smallish organizations that it'd be pretty easy to bring our teams together and um but it definitely proved more difficult than we anticipated um just in terms of the two different cultures and um you know it that was a, a real challenge but looking back on it, we wouldn't have done it any other way. I think it's been really beneficial for the organization. It meant that we kind of 
merged our two strengths. We had very complementary strengths. We had um, the Spark impact model of, of um, and we had we were getting good results from um, these enterprises that we were um, supporting. And then YGAP had this great network of people um, and volunteers who could sort of drive and fund that work. And um, and so it was really a, a great partnership, but um, definitely more challenging in the early days um, to, to really bring those two teams together. And there was a few years in the early days of kind of working out those, not, not trying not to be in silos. And, you know, it took a bit of time to really fully integrate. Yeah, it's quite funny. I remember quite fondly in about 2016, I was working in the public service and I came down to YGAP thinking it's like they're probably a little bit late for most of your volunteers. I would have been the oldest guy there, but I was 31 and just thinking now is the time that I really want to try and understand this social enterprise space. And I ended up um, working with the team there to be their partnerships manager for the Five Cent program for probably six months. (laughs) Yes, sounds like a distant memory, but um. Yeah, through that uh, time, that was a lot of fun. And then the podcast started a year later and um, Elliot Costello was our first guest on the podcast. And I remember that, actually. Yeah. I think I listened to that episode. Yeah, and it was it was like, you know, I mentioned it on the last episode, but um, it was the, the me episode. But I feel so, like, um, indebted and grateful to Elliot for coming on in the first episode of what probably was terrible quality in many ways, but his message was so good and he was such a good sport about it and um hopefully 250 episodes later we, we've got a bit more of a formula and an idea about how to do things but i still yeah i'm equally intrigued by um ygap's mission and one of the things i i think about a little bit is like um you know it's so hard to affect measure and kind of uh, accelerate change when it's so far away and mm-hmm. I see that you've got local offices in all these countries now, like in Africa and whatnot, and that seems to be a really important part of the model. But do you sort of have much tension how you think about, like, um, locality and how close things need to be to be able to have good um, control and influence over impact and success? Or does it not matter anymore because of your global networks? No, I think it does matter. I think it's very mm-hmm. important to us still. Um and we're finding now also that it's very important to the people who support us um, or, or partner with us as well. Um, because yes, you can, and, and we were doing it early on, um, trying to do it, um, but it's it's much easier to measure and validate and just understand the context um, by having, you know, boots on the ground and people in these communities um, who, you know, our team, our global team, um, really leans on the knowledge and expertise um, and understanding of that context uh, that our local teams have. Um, and so we sort of, that's a, a real value and principle of ours is um, that they have the knowledge and um, we kind of facilitate, uh, you know, the, the team to to for them to kind of input that information in. So every time we, we develop a new program or uh, a new curriculum, you know, those teams are then contextualizing. Um, so I don't think we could do what we do, um, you know, efficiently and um, in a way that's relevant for these communities without that. I think it's tremendous. And I, I think the way, the complexity of what you're doing at scale is really what takes my interest. So 
I'm just reading some of the data from your website. I hope that's okay that I yeah, repeat back to you things that yeah. you already well know. But 59 <laughs> programs run across Africa, South Asia, and Australasia, 616 ventures supported with social and environmental impact, 86% ventures surviving, operating two years post-program, which sounds pretty unprecedented. Um, and then 73% positive revenue growth, so more jobs and more community impact, which is just phenomenal. Um, what do you, what does it feel like for you when you hear those uh, figures repeated back to you about the, the legacy and what you're creating? Yeah, it's amazing. Like we're, we're very proud of the work we've done over the years. And I think what's most um, satisfying for me is the fact that I play a very small role in the organization now. Um, and we've got this awesome team that's driving this. And actually every year we're, you know, making huge improvements to um, what we're doing. And we've got an awesome leadership team at the moment who has just completely revamped our, our strategy. Um, so we were really shifting from, you know, historically we focused on poverty alleviation um, and we've, we've shifted now to focus more on um, sort of equity and sustainability. So, you know, and that was really driven by thinking about like, well, what is a priority today? Um, and also what's within our control to shift? Um, what are we best placed to have an impact on? And we've, you know, we've started to develop some exciting new expertise um, around gender um, and starting to move into the sustainability space um, through applying a climate lens to our programs. Um, and so, yeah, really excited about what the team is doing and as I said, I play a small role in that now. So I kind of oversee um, our learning design, which is, um, you know, some of our, pro the, the design of our programs um, and some of the curriculum and content and toolkits that we create. Um, but yeah, just really proud of, of everything the team has done um, to, to achieve. It's, um, yes, phenomenal work. And I, I just guess, from my perspective, I've noticed like a maybe it's a subtle shift or more of a deliberate shift around um, inclusivity um, in the space and gender inclusion, applying gender lenses, supporting women-led um, ventures. So was this a result of sort of recognising early on that um, that women are underrepresented and under-supported to be a big part of that space? 100%, yeah. So myself and um, one of our South African employees, Kat Leho, um, we you know, a few years ago, um, saw that there was a need for a more feminine approach to acceleration. Um, and so we piloted uh, the Why Her program, which was a, a women-only accelerator program that really just tailored our curriculum um, to suit women and also just created that space for women to be really honest and, and share uh, the challenges that they face um, in trying to run a business, um, a social business at that as well. So I think that that experience gave us a lot of insight into how powerful it is and how, what those, how those needs differ for women and also those, those barriers that they are facing. Um, and so that program grew. Um, we, we now still run that in the Pacific Islands. Um, we've recently actually shifted that program to uh, in Africa. Um, this year we piloted, rather than running an accelerator program, we piloted um, a y, our Why Her Invest program. So it was an investment readiness program to look at um, kind of, we, we realized that, you know, 
access to finance for women entrepreneurs is one of the biggest barriers they face, particularly in Africa. Um, and so we sort of wondered if we could help um, to narrow that gender funding gap um, by giving these women entrepreneurs the, the knowledge and insights and tools they need to figure out what's the appropriate type of capital and amount of capital and, you know, and then how do we actually go about, um, you know, getting investment. Um, and so we just piloted that. So it'd be really interesting to see um, the results from that and how that evolves. But yes, gender um, th through that Why Her program and, and then, you know, because we were seen as uh, one of the earlier women only uh, accelerators, we then, uh, that kind of led to some work that we have done over the last few years in um, gender lens, you know, applying a gender lens to acceleration and incubation. So we um, participated in the development of the GLIA yeah, toolkit. Yeah. yeah. Um, and that has, again, kind of um, expanded our, our experience in terms of now we've supported uh, a range of, I think, 12 um, accelerators and incubators across Southeast Asia who, who are trying to apply a gender lens to their work um, and are, yeah, still have a community of practice that's running off the back of that, um, you know, developing a certification program for those organizations to be able to signal their expertise and also train others to apply a gender lens um, in their specific context. So, um, yeah, it's, it's evolved to a lot of um, great work around gender. And I think the the um, shift to inclusivity and, and sort of equity has really been because we realized that's what we were focusing on. We were looking at who are these under, as you said, underrepresented, um, underestimated, uh, under-resourced entrepreneurs. Women here in Australia, it's often we're working in the refugee and migrant space. Um, you know, how can we make entrepreneurship more inclusive? Because we know, you know that's going to drive um, innovation and change and economic growth. Um, but we want everyone to be able to participate in that. Yeah. And so I guess like maybe part of the question or problem statement might be that we're not seeing um, equal or very disproportionate levels of funding um, going to, to male um, startup entrepreneurs versus um, female startup entrepreneurs and probably also the, the volume of funding would be considerably higher going to male um, mm -hmm. entrepreneurs rather than female entrepreneurs doing sort of similar things. Is it, was this sort of some of the evidence that we were seeing early on that indicated that this was a significant problem that needed to be addressed? Yes, yeah. So in Africa where we ran this investment readiness program, um, all male founding teams um, raised $25 for every $1 raised by all female founding teams. So, yeah, definitely um, there's a lot of data around that gap. Um, and, uh, you know, but it wasn't just the funding gap. You know, it was also um, just realizing that women do business differently in a lot of ways and how can we help them grow and how can we also help investors understand what, women-led businesses need because it's not always the traditional VC capital um, and we're looking at a lot of more innovative um, like trade financing or just interesting um, investment vehicles that are potentially more suited to women-led ventures than um, than the traditional VC um, funding. So now that you're tackling that really well with that, um, you know, having been into 12 accelerators to help them think about that gender lens and how to do things differently, what is keeping you up 
now is the next challenge um, in this ecosystem and space? And what what, what, were you, what are you thinking about that YCAP might do differently next? Yeah, well, um, a few things. I guess the next thing that we're trying to tackle alongside our gender lens is a climate lens. Um, and personally, it, this is really important to me, um, having experienced the floods up here in Byron this year and obviously seeing my, my family live in California. So we're seeing fires. Like I just feel like the, um, the evidence of climate change is so clear. Um, and we are really keen to play a part in, in, um, creating some positive change in that arena. So um, this we're just this year piloting a climate lens. So um, we're hoping to do that uh, through our Australia program first. So looking at a program that is going to help enterprises um, make some small changes and understand what they can do to become a more sustainable business model, um, looking at circular economy principles and, and that kind of thing. So um, that's still in the in the works and in development, but I'm really excited about the impact that could have. Um, obviously, there's a lot of groups out there working on supporting climate-specific ventures. Um, we are more focusing on how can we help every venture apply some of those principles. Um, and hopefully that will make um, a big difference in, in the long run as well. So that's one thing I'm really passionate about. I think we're also just doing some really exciting work um, through, you know, we've traditionally done a lot of work directly supporting entrepreneurs um, for, for the last deck, you know, over a decade, that's what we've primarily done. But in the last probably five years, our work has really evolved to include, um, as I mentioned, that capacity building of other organizations helping them to de design and deliver inclusive programs um, that are, you know, supporting entrepreneurs to be more successful. Um, but we're also um, engaging in a lot of strategic partnerships with organizations across different sectors. So, um, and that's really to collaborate on designing system level solutions that are breaking down those barriers to entrepreneurship. So might be sort of increasing access or democratizing access to whether that's capacity building support um, to finance to markets, um, and one of the exciting program uh, projects that we've just been working on in the Pacific is um, a partnership with FinTech Pacific and Mastercard and and DFAP, um, and that is looking at. Um, sort of a financial inclusion um, aim for women entrepreneurs in, in Fiji. So we're basically um, uh, piloting a payment platform for these small sort of vendors, market vendors in Fiji. And um, YGAP is kind of leading on um, work training these women, um, making sure that the whole project is sort of um, locally led and tailored to the, the local context. So um, that's really excited because a lot of these women that they can't, they don't work with um, credit card payments. It's all cash, uh, but this is sort of bringing them into the digital, um, you know, payment platforms. And um, hopefully, yeah, we're really excited about what that project will look like. Um, sort of in parallel to that, we're working on another project also in Fiji um, funded by USAID. Um, to kind of capacitate um, these sort of MSMEs with in e-payments and e-commerce. Um, so they're sort of 
parallel projects that are, are really complementary. But th- those kind of partnerships are kind of what w- we are trying to um, continue to work on and, and grow. Uh, and more and more, we're we're building the capacity and um, leveraging our local teams to deliver some of that work and drive some of that work. So um, that's that's kind of our hopefully what the future looks like for YGAP. Um, you know, doing a lot more of that, which is really exciting for us. That's super exciting. And um, sounds like a lot of international partnership work and working with, um, you know, people all around the world, which must be hard, um, you know, with your lifestyle and whatnot. How do you sort of find space to regenerate yourself, to reduce stress, to be a bit more present and connected? What's your kind of practices or toolkit Mm. in that sense? Um, it's a good question. Being a parent of young children, um, <laughs> I don't, you know, I really have to work hard to carve out that time. Um, and as I'm sure you know, as a, a new dad, um, well, and maybe not yet because your kids aren't in right now. Um, I know a lot of parents are struggling with, uh, particularly this year post-COVID, um, constant sickness and mm. having to juggle, you know, work not being able to work because your kids are home and all of that has been a for us anyway this year has been quite challenging um but you know Aaron and and I'm only working part-time so that that helps a lot with that juggle and with me being able to find some time but um Aaron and I work really hard to kind of carve out our separate time and you know I I do yoga I um you know try and get out and um you know do a a life drawing class or, you know, um, you know, carve out that time for for something that brings me joy. Um, really love watercolor. So I'm like, you know, try and find some time for that, but it is a a big challenge as a, as a parent. How do you, um, you know, you are a lover of flaneur, which is to wander aimlessly. Is that something you can do in one place? Like I I love a flaneur and I was actually really pleased to learn that expression about just uh, wandering around and there's nothing I like more than what I'm about to do after this podcast, which will be to just go on a, you know, a little walk with uh, my wife Louise and baby Marlo just around and just kind of without any real intention. It's kind of the most um, nice thing. I mean, the intention will be to get a coffee because we're from Melbourne and that's what we do. Um, but do you get to flutter a bit in Byron? Yeah, definitely not as much as, you know, because we, we're not living right in Byron. So we, you know, to get a coffee, we do have to jump in the car, but, um, we, you know, we're, we're not far from the beach. So I will go for a morning beach walk. Um, definitely. But I think, you know, my vision of Flanor is really more from my travels and that's kind of where, and it's been hard because we haven't really had a chance to do much of that. And um, we've also just built a house here in Byron. So um, our, we're having a, you know, a very low key year <laughs> financially. Um, so looking forward to getting back to travel because that is sort of what um, makes me come alive in terms of that, just having no agenda and and wandering a new city. Um, so yeah, really missing that at the moment. Actually. So is that like a bit of a practice of mindlessness? So just being able to switch off and just enjoy the experience of being somewhere else and sort of soaking all that up? Definitely, yeah. And it's funny, I think um, sometimes I feel like I miss that. And and But one thing I have found and try and remind myself is as much as I need to carve out time to meditate and, you know, um, 
I find parenting actually is a really good tool for being present. Um, yeah, you know, you, definitely. you can't really be somewhere else when you're, when you're with your kids, you know, like yeah. you can try, but they'll, they'll bring you back. Um, <laughs> they'll bring you back real fast. Yeah. Um, we, we had a really good chat just before we started just about the, um, the challenges of, of parenting, sort of some of the gender stuff around that that's a bit different for men and women. Yeah. I'd love to hear a bit about what you're doing. You talked about a, a wonderful uh, workshop that you've been running for, for new mums um, to do with that shift in identity that I, I think my wife's definitely faced um, as well. And um, love for you to just talk a little bit more about that. Mm. Yeah, so um, just before COVID happened, um, well, I guess I was still in my um, matrescence. So this isn't a word that was new to me at the time, um, but it's essentially like the transformation we go through in adolescence, that identity shift and kind of upheaval. And um, it's something that hasn't been hugely acknowledged for women as they transition into motherhood. But um, that is uh, was something I, th- I think I was going through at the time. And when I discovered this word, I thought, oh, it'd be amazing to kind of create an experience to help women um, process that shift. Because I felt there was a lot that had changed in terms of my priorities and who, who I felt I was. And I was kind of trying to... Um, yeah, think about process, decide what my, you know, what I wanted to do with my career, if it was going to change, if it was going to stay the same, how I was going to balance that with uh, having children. And, um, but I, I just felt like I was kind of running on autopilot and didn't really have the space to step back and think about that. And so um, that was where this idea for this retreat came about was to create that space for mothers and get them to step outside of that daily grind and um, reflect on what has that transition been like for me and what parts of myself have I sort of lost in some way through this um, as a new mom and what what do I need to kind of wrangle back um, and and create more space for and how do I do that and what are my values now that uh, you know how have they shifted over time and um, so yeah we, myself and um, a business partner um, Bridget Wood created this retreat and um, we ran it right before COVID so actually it was a, a, a funny time because we ran it luckily um, was able to run it but then um couldn't run it for a few years um and so we built an online course uh over the last couple of years which uh, i'm about to launch so that's sort of another um way i guess that mothers can engage in that but um yeah i think every mother um you know sort of does need a little bit of guidance to process that and as we were talking about before i think as the gender roles have shifted, um, you know, for, for those men and fathers who are really involved um, in the parenting role, I think there's there's definitely room and need for, for a space for them to process as well. I'm sure, you, you know, that's all very fresh for you. Yeah, I think you're spot on. I think, I think um, it's a bit of a gap in the discourse and kind of shared uh, understanding of what the male's transition will be or the mm-hmm. matrescence. For, for men because um, mm-hmm. even though a lot of men will keep working in some capacity they have a bit of time off um, very much the experience for me was like because um, I've been quite new in my um, job seven months now something but back then it was only a few months and you know you just get two weeks of leave and it's just you meant to just go back to work like everything's the same but nothing's the same you've been through a pretty um, dramatic shift in identity and um, who you are just changes a lot um 
And I think we don't have rituals as men that kind of, uh, or, or kind of, there's no, there, there, there are some now, but we don't really have mother's groups per se. We don't really mm. have baby showers. We don't really have kind of that um, way of connecting as men. Um, mm. You know, men are far more basic creatures most of the time where it will just be WhatsApp to one friend saying, how are you going, mate? And the other the friend will say, oh, yeah, going pretty good. And that's the end of the conversation. But that doesn't really help you to get very far in terms of that shared experience. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, so definitely an interesting space that I think we should be talking about more. Um, yeah, and that's where I think I mentioned before we started um Anna Rubinstein runs some really fascinating programs um, around rites of passage. Mm. Um, so kind of try for men. Um, I think they also do them for women, but I think it started out um, for men uh, to, to do that, to acknowledge some of these um, transitions and, and bring some ritual to it um, and talk about masculinity. And, um, and another group that I love is Tomorrow Men, um, who are also doing that talk, you know, really sort of challenging our the stereotypes and concepts of masculinity um, with programs for young men, um, mostly in schools, I believe. And yeah, so and I'm, I'm really I'm really happy that you mentioned that and that you listened to that episode last week, although it's mm. a little bit cringe for me to reflect back on my own episode. But um, I'm glad that part of it resonated and um, sort of opened up a conversation that I didn't expect to have. Yeah, no, definitely. And um, as I shared with you, both of our kids are also born through IVF. So, um, you know, it's definitely a, a challenging. And I think more and more, like, as I think you said, you realize once you start having these conversations that lots of people have had infertility challenges and um, probably not enough people talk about it. Um, oh, and, yeah. Yeah. So it was it was great to hear you talk about it um, and yeah. share your experience. Yeah, look, I think the more we can put our vulnerabilities up front for an audience to sort of sit with, um, it only helps bring people in and that's, that's what you need if you want to build um, awareness, community and um, engagement. And, yeah, I'd be happy to talk at any length about the experiences of IVF and, you know, that that in a very probably, I'm not sure if it, you'd felt that way or there was feelings for you, but there were certainly feelings of inadequacy for myself um, as mm. a man um, and for my wife as a woman, mm. um, feeling that we were not um, able to do that uh, naturally. But then, as you say, uh, you kind of, all you have to do is sort of tell others about your experience openly and then they'll say, oh, yeah, no, look, one or both of our kids for IVF um, mm. or, you know, and it, it's just, it ended up being some crazy number like, I think 30% or 40% of our friends um, have gone down that pathway. And it's just a, it's one of these um, kind of assisted, I feel like assisted reproductive therapy is still semi-taboo to talk about, mm. you know, with other people in a broader setting. And I'd love for that to change at some point. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. It's, it's crazy how much more common it is but I guess a lot of us are putting off having kids, right? <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. I guess that's part of it too. But, yeah, the whole mm. I think the whole area to unpack there, and I'm, I'm excited to mm. talk to you a bit more offline about some of those yeah, um, organisations and resources that can maybe help with that. Mm. Yeah. So, hey, this has been an amazing conversation. I've just loved chatting with you. And, I mean, hearing all, everything about what you're doing is just very exciting. It's inspiring. 
Um, when I watched the um, the gender lens inclusion um, toolkit uh, accelerator toolkit, um, I saw Manita Ray on the on the front cover as well, and mm-hmm. she's been on the podcast as well. Oh, awesome! So yeah. It's kind of nice Amazing. that we've had uh, we had Elliot and we had Manita, and now we're chatting together. So this is like a really nice continuity through the podcast. I feel. <laughs> yeah. Well, it's been lovely to chat with you too. Thanks so much yeah. for having me. My pleasure. And so what what can people do to support you and your work at YGAP and also to connect with you and learn a bit more about your work? Yeah. So, um, I mean, we've got uh, actually a, a big campaign coming up um, in October called Polished Man. Um, some of the listeners may have heard of that. So that's a really easy way for anyone to get involved with our work. And actually this year we're shifting the focus a little bit um, away from just thinking looking about at violence against children but also looking at women um and so uh that is yeah one of our our big kind of uh peer-to-peer funders and campaigns um but if anyone else listening is interested in supporting YGAP um we'd love to have a chat uh you can have a look at our website there's lots of ways to um I guess you know engage with us and and partner um if you're an organization that works in this space um we're we're super keen to collaborate um that's sort of one of our key values is is um working together uh for the same goals so fantastic Taylor. look thanks so much if you hang around for one sec let's have a quick debrief and um thanks for being with me yeah thank you If you enjoyed this episode, make sure you hit the subscribe button in your podcast player and why not share it with a friend or two? If you want more from your Humans of Purpose experience, become a Humans of Purpose member today through our new platform, Supercast. All you need to do is hit the link in our show notes. If you have a message to share with our audience about your brand, products or services, we have a wide variety of paid promotional packages available. Please get in touch by hitting the link in our show notes.